0: Welcome to the Redemption Church Podcast. We exist to become witnesses to God's new creation so that every man, woman, and child has a daily encounter with Jesus. We believe that as a family of servant missionaries, we are empowered to participate in God's story because of the good news that King Jesus is making all things new. We are invited to gather, go, give, and grow together by the power of His Spirit. Today is the last in a two-part Theology Night series on Our Resurrection Hope. Hosted by Redemption Church Pastor Dr. Scott Osborne, this recording was originally an interactive Facebook Live broadcast from Spring 2020.
1: Uh, Tonight is part two of our uh, Theology Night of uh, Resurrection, Our Future Hope. What is the hope that we have set out for our future? What? do you look forward to in the coming days, maybe in this life, but maybe in the next life, that gives you hope, that gives you um, a sense of excitedness, a sense of joy. And uh, for the Christians, I think what we come to see in the New Testament is that what our future hope is, what we put our hope in is resurrection. And I think we just often, really have a misunderstanding of resurrection. We just started walking through the Old Testament passages about resurrection, and uh, we started in Genesis 1 and 2, which will become foundational for us tonight, so I just want to set the stage again for uh, what we're going to do tonight by going back and looking um, at a few things. In Genesis 1 and 2, we see in our origin story, the beginning of the world, that... God made humans, and he made them good. In fact, the day that God made humans, the sixth day, was the day that he said that this day was very good. And that just highlights, again, the importance, uh, the significance of you and me and, in light of creation, us being made in the image of God, us, giving, us having authority and rule and dominion over this earth, And so what we came to see is that the bodies that God gave us in Genesis 1 and 2 are great. They're good. They're not to be rid of. They're not evil. In fact, they are something to be celebrated and wondered at, Psalm 139, that we are fearfully and wonderfully made. And I just think in our context of Christianity where we live, we tend to see this world as evil. We tend to see our bodies as evil, and the goal of Christianity, in a sense, is to escape this world, because this world is so evil. We want to escape, um, probably for most of us, to a place called heaven, and a place up in the skies, playing on. Uh, sorry, playing a cl- playing a harp on a cloud, forever and ever. And uh, for many of us, that is kind of the pejorative, or just. Not nice, but way of thinking about what our future is, is up in heaven, way up there. And, and what the goal of Christianity is, is not how we can actually go up to be with God in the heavens. The goal of the Bible, the goal of the Christianity, the goal of the story of God is actually how God can come down to be with us. And in light of that, what we saw last week is that the bodies that God gave Adam and Eve, even though they were good, in a sense, even though they were perfect, they were still incomplete. They were still able to sin. They were still able to not find rest. The things that God wanted for them to be clothed, they were naked. All these things that we'll see even this week point to the fact that something was not yet finished. Something was not yet done with the bodies that God gave to us. And so we saw in Genesis chapter 3 in the fall and the rebellion when the serpent, when Satan snuck into the garden... Um, We saw that he tricked Adam and Eve, and part of that deception, part of that temptation that they gave into, was death. And not just separation of God from them, but actually separation of their body um, from what it should be. And so they experienced physical death. And so Adam and Eve, and consequently all of us since Adam and Eve, have experienced death and will one day experience death except for those who are on the earth when Jesus actually returns. And so, we saw in the Old Testament, just like a few passages, like in Daniel chapter 12 and Isaiah chapter 26 and Ezekiel 37, just some passages where the Bible in the Old Testament spoke about God bringing resurrection, bringing life back to people. And one of the things we saw last week is that this is really important. Really important that the that resurrection is actually the bringing back of the body and giving the body life, so that resurrection. And this we're going to start this week with the New Testament. Resurrection is not what happens to us after we die. Resurrection is not life after death. Resurrection is what happens when Jesus comes back. And he turns and transforms the bodies that we have put into the grounds. And he makes them brand new and gives us new life, new physical bodies for a new creation. So that one commentator says it this way, and you got to think for a second. We're talking about resurrection. It's not life after death. But it's actually life after life after death. So let me just put this in some simple categories for you. My wife, Shelly, most of you know if you have been on redemption, um, died of brain cancer almost four years ago now. And she is experiencing right now life after death. She is, I believe, to be absent from the body to be present with the Lord. I believe she's with Jesus. But she has not experienced the resurrection yet. She has not experienced the transformation that her body will undergo. And so, in the New Testament, what we come to see is that our life after we die comes in two stages. The first stage is when we go to be with Jesus in heaven. And the second stage is when we come back with Jesus and experience a transformed, brand new body to be with God forever on a new earth. God is going to renew this earth and make it what it should have always become. And our bodies are always are going to become what they should have always become. Resurrection, Spirit-filled, Spirit-created bodies. And so that's where I want to start tonight, is that when we come to the New Testament and we talk about resurrection, let's be very clear that we're not talking about life after death, We're talking about something that happens after life, after death. That happens when Jesus comes back and gives us new life. And the reason why we believe that is, first of all, what happened with Jesus. And so let's just quickly look, if you will, in John chapter 11. We talked about this last week, but I want to just make mention of this a little bit more. If you have your Bibles, you can turn to John chapter 11. Hello, Joanne. Good to see you on. Man, look at all these people joining us. That's exciting. Josh Turner. The Turners are back. I heard you're uh, top gun-bound. That's pretty impressive. Hello, Ryan. I forgot my, my coat for you next time. My bad, Ryan. You'll be fine. You'll be fine. But John chapter 11. And the question I want to ask is this when jesus walked out of the grave what was different about his resurrection than lazarus resurrection because in the bible we have many times in scripture where people actually die and come back to life so even the old testament we have elijah who raised the widow's son in first Kings 17 or peter raises a woman named tabitha or as a kid we always like to know in the bible there's someone named dorcas or Paul raises Eutychus, uh, a young man from the dead, who he puts to sleep while preaching, fell out the window. And so we have in the Scripture various people who came back from the dead, various people who walked out of the grave, and we don't celebrate them. We don't celebrate Easter for Lazarus or the widow's son, or Eutychus, but we do celebrate Easter for Jesus. And what makes Jesus' resurrection unique? Well, here's what I want us to say, that for Paul and the New Testament, when Jesus walked out of the grave, his body was not just abandoned in the tomb, nor had his body just been resuscitated, coming back into an identical form of life that he had before he went into the grave. He will not face death again in the future. Why? Because what happened to Jesus in the grave is what is going to happen to all of us when we experience life after life after death. We are going to experience the same thing that Jesus experienced. Jesus experienced a transformation of his natural body into an incorruptible body. Jesus, when he walked out of the grave, had a body that could no longer experience decay or destruction or disease or death. In fact, this is how we know Jesus defeated death. He came out of the grave with a body that cannot die, which means death cannot win. And so resurrection is not life in heaven. Resurrection is life on a renewed earth When God comes back in the person of Jesus and by the power of the Spirit gives us new, transformed, physical, incorruptible bodies. This is resurrection. This is our hope. So, that is, if you heard nothing else, you can get off now because that's the the summary. What I want to do is go into some passages and actually lay that out for you. Come to the New Testament and see where do we see these points. Now, what I wanted to do last week, this is where uh, I changed my mind today, of course, and uh, did a lot more research than I wanted to because I had enough content today from last week. But um, last week what I was going to do is just give what I'm going to call a flyover view of 1 Corinthians 15. If you're not familiar with 1 Corinthians 15, it is 58 verses. It is a dense chapter. It's the most compact and the most content we have in one place on resurrection from the, in the New Testament. It comes from the Apostle Paul. It is a rich, dense passage, chapter on resurrection. And so last week what I was going to do is I was going to do a flyover. Like getting in a plane and just fly over it and look down and see a couple mountain peaks and talk about those mountain peaks. And uh, the more throughout the week as I was examining and looking at this passage, I wanted to do a swim through 1 Corinthians 15. And that's different than a deep dive. Okay, so we're not going all the way down. Okay, we're just going to come down a little bit and swim through 1 Corinthians 15 tonight. And uh, so. Hopefully, that will be an encouragement to you. And so, if you're in 1 Corinthians 15, let me just make a couple comments before we begin to um, jump in. And, uh, well, look at all these people joining us. Hey, Joe and Sabrina, welcome. Welcome, welcome, Sharon. Hello. (laughs) Got the bear. I like it. In 1 Corinthians 15, and again, I want you to know if you have questions, please feel free to... Put them on Facebook, and um, I will seek to address them. And if you're like, this is boring, what does Revelation 20 mean about the first resurrection, why there's no second resurrection, you can ask that too. And, uh, you know, just ask anything you want on the topic of resurrection as well, and we'll kind of get to those. But First Corinthians 15, as I mentioned, we're going to do a swim through. Um, this is the most remarkable chapter in the New Testament on the resurrection. Paul is in the midst of what we'd call a Greek megacity. And when we say megacity, we might be talking about 50,000 people here. Okay, So this wasn't like New York City of multi, you know, millions and millions of people, but probably close to around 50,000 people. And the people in Corinth had a wide array of beliefs about resurrection, about life after death. We kind of analyzed some of those last week, but this became a major issue in Corinth about people about how they didn't believe in the resurrection or they believe the resurrection had already come and it was a spiritual resurrection and there was great uh you know issues great struggles in this church about the future about what the hope is for the christian and what paul wants to tell them is that jesus has secured a resurrection for his people however what he does is he reworks the nature in which he shows how the resurrection is already here. One of the things we're going to see is just that there's a two-stage event for us after we die. We go to be with Jesus in the heavens awaiting our resurrection bodies. So we have that first stage in heaven and the second stage of coming down to earth. There's also a two-stage way that the resurrection comes. And we're going to see in 1 Corinthians 15 that the first stage is Jesus. And the second stage is all of the people who follow him, all of his disciples. And so when Jesus awoke and walked out of the grave, he walked out with the first transformed resurrection body. And as Philippians chapter 3, which is one of my favorite chapters, we might get there a little bit later, it says when he comes back, our lowly bodies will be transformed into his same body. We don't become Jesus, but we get the same type of incorruptible, transformed, resurrected body that Jesus has. And so those are the two stages, first Jesus, and then us. And so we will all experience this resurrection, we will all experience our resurrection after Jesus. And we should say this, that no one to this point other than Jesus has experienced resurrection. He is still the sole person in all of history to experience resurrection. Let me um go back and uh, make one point about life after death. Uh, it says in John chapter 14, and uh, we're just going off the cuff here, so I'm going to open my Bibles if you want to keep your finger in 1 Corinthians 15 because we're going to come back there. But let's go to John chapter 14 just for a minute because I think this is an important part because... You may, in one sense, have heard all the things that I'm saying to you, but I think if you're honest with yourself, the things I'm saying to you are not what have been traditionally taught in evangelicalism. We still think of this dual reality of heaven and earth and this idea that we are trying to get out of this earth so that everything is about heaven. And so in John chapter 14, one of the famous passages that we think about this, is when Jesus and um, Thomas and the disciples are talking, he says in John chapter 14, verse 7, Lord, show us the Father, and we will be satisfied. Um, and so Jesus goes on to say that he is building a mansion, which is the King James word, that we actually, let's just start in chapter 14, verse 1. Don't let your hearts be troubled. Trust in God, trust also in me. There is more than enough room in my father's home. If this were not so, would I have told you that I'm going to prepare a place for you? When everything is ready, I will come and get you so that you will always be with me where I am, and you know the way I am going. So in John chapter 14, we get this imagery that Jesus is going away, and he's preparing a home. He's preparing a dwelling place for us and he's going to bring us to that dwelling place and so we get this imagery that we're going to be playing football in the backyard thanks to christian evangelical music and get this idea that we're going to be floating up there doing stuff in the heavens in the room that god has prepared for us the king james actually translates this word mansion and you know so we get this idea that we're going to get this huge house The Greek word actually has the connotation of, I'm going to say this, of a hotel room. So one of the things Shelley loved to watch that I never could get into was a show called Downton Abbey. Even after she died, I tried to watch it in honor of her, and I just couldn't. It was just, for me, the movie was great. It was a two-hour thing. It was done, right? You know, it wasn't this long, drawn-out drama. But one of the things you see is in the King James version of mansion, it's actually kind of got that house in mind. That Jesus is going to prepare a house for us. He's going to let us stay there. But in that show, and if you watch any of those Elizabethan era shows when people had big houses, people would regularly, routinely come in, stay for the night, and then continue on their journey. And this is the imagery that Jesus is presenting in John chapter 14 that life after death is that we're going to go to be with him, that he's preparing a place for us. But that is not our final eternal dwelling place. Our final eternal dwelling place is life after life after death. When Jesus comes back, we follow him and come down. But again, John chapter 14 is just another example of a passage in scripture where we have this tendency that our afterlife is up in heaven. For all of eternity, when in reality, that is not what the New Testament is actually teaching us. And so, it's just a little uh, sidebar I had to throw out there, but I'm trying to help us to see is that we have this view of the afterlife that I think needs to be reshaped. We have this view of the afterlife that we need to reorient our life around something different, a better hope, a more enduring hope, a more exciting hope. In fact, as one author says, you might be surprised by the hope that we actually have and so we come to First Corinthians fifteen to look at Paul's single greatest argument about this hope and let's kind of work through it together I'm not going to read all of it for you, um, but what I want to do is set the stage in First Corinthians chapter fifteen uh, and verses one through eleven. I'm not sure. How many of you are with us tonight are familiar with this particular passage? And for those of you who are really familiar with it, please bear with me as we read through some verses together. And those of you who are not familiar with 1 Corinthians 15, I encourage you to think through what the Bible is actually teaching us. And so, in 1 Corinthians chapter 1 through 11, 1 Corinthians 15 verses 1 through 11, I'm just going to read the first three or four verses Paul says this let me remind you brothers of the gospel of the good news I preached to you you welcomed it and then you stood firm in it and it is this good news that saves you if you continue to believe the message I told you unless of course you believe something that was never true in the first place and so I passed on to you I gave to you is the most important message I had Jesus Christ died for our sins just as the scripture said. He was buried, he was raised from the dead, and on the third day, just as the scripture said. And then he was seen by Peter, the twelve, and the five hundred. See, Paul begins this document, this treatise on the resurrection, with the gospel, the gospel, the good news that Jesus Christ died, how do you know? He went in the grave. He rose from the dead. How do you know? He was seen by over 500 people. And so G- sorry, Paul is saying this. If that If there is no resurrection, there is no good news. The gospel event of Jesus Christ dying and rising from the dead is the foundation and the basis for our resurrection. So that if there is no resurrection... If there is no future bodily transformation of our bodies into new physical bodies, new life, breathed into by the Spirit, then the gospel is not true. I think that hits us, should hit us in ways that is fascinating because (laughs) the gospel doesn't just give us a plan and a map of how to escape this world and go be with God in heaven. The gospel is actually good news of how God is going to transform our bodies and give us bodies that will never experience decay on an earth that has never seen curse. And so it begins just by saying this, that the basis of Christianity hinges on the resurrection. The fact that Jesus walked out of the grave different than Lazarus. It hinges on the fact that Jesus walked out of the grave different than all the other resurrections. And so he comes into the second section in verses 12 through 28 in 1 Corinthians 15. And he's going to begin in this first section to address the timing of the resurrection. In the second part of the chapter, after we get to the timing, he's going to address the type of resurrection. And then we're going to talk about what that means for us in our everyday life. And so we're just going to talk about the timing of the resurrection and the type of resurrection. And the first thing we see in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 12, is that this some of the Corinthians were denying resurrection. They're denying that the resurrection was real. They're denying that it would ever happen. And for Paul, this is absolutely absurd. And in fact, they're like, in a sense, cutting off the very branch they're sitting on. They're cutting off the very chairs, sorry, the very stools of the chair of Christianity. Then, in a sense, Paul is saying, you're missing the whole point. Two times, in verses 13 and 16, he makes claims that says this, that if Jesus Christ has not been raised from the dead, then there is no resurrection. Two times he's making this point, is that if there's no resurrection of the dead, Christ has not been raised. And clearly, Christ has been raised, which is why he says, go check with all these witnesses. He continues to say, further, if there's no resurrection the apostles, including himself, were false teachers. They were all going around telling the world, in a sense, that Jesus walked out of the grave. Not that he just came back to the life and the body that he had, but that God had given him a brand new body. A transformed body. A body that could never experience disease or death again. And if That was not the case. Then their whole message, the gospel itself, was false. And their very faith of trusting in Paul's message is empty, which means this: that if the Corinthians believe this message that Paul told them, then the content of their faith is empty. They have nothing to substantly hold on to. The content of their faith is gone. They have nothing to believe anymore. And yet he's not done. He says in verse 17, If Christ has not been raised, your faith is empty and you're still in your sins. If there is no resurrection, not only did Jesus not rise from the dead, and not only is their faith empty of its content, but they are still wasting their time. Their life is empty. It has no meaning. Their Christianity is purposeless. And when it says you're still in your sins, I think it's important that we see that paul is talking about something that we need to see that's really important and it's this being still in your sins means you still belong to this present evil age the new age in which their sins have been left behind, if they don't believe in the gospel and the resurrection this new age has not begun that's what they're saying but what the New Testament writers are saying, what Jesus actually did is when he walked out of the grave, he brought the new age. The new age that says, not new age like Oprah and Hindu, and new age stuff, but I'm talking about the new order, the new world. That God is going to actually dwell with His people. On Jesus brought that world to us, and He transferred us, as He says in Colossians, out of the tran- transfer us out of the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of His beloved Son. That kingdom of Jesus of His beloved Son is this new world, and we belong there. And our sins no longer find us there. And what Paul is actually saying, that if Jesus did not come out of the grave and he did not rise from the dead and experience resurrection, we are still in the old age. There is no resurrection, there is no forgiveness, there is no restoration. But the reason you're able to experience these promises and more promises is because when Jesus walked out of the grave, it was unlike Lazarus. In fact, it was totally different. He walked out bringing God's new order, God's new world to us in the midst of this old age that we live in. So Paul says, if Christ is not raised, Christianity is a mistake. It's empty. It's futile. And then he says in verse 18, if only for this life we have Christ, we are of all people most to be pitied. He's basically saying, we're the dumbest people there are. We're the biggest idiots to follow this Jesus, to believe this Christian message, if resurrection is not real. See, in these verses, Paul is demonstrating resurrection is essential to the Christian faith. In fact, without it, there is no gospel. And he's going to go on now to speak more specifically about how resurrection in God's story will unfold. He makes the claim so far that there is resurrection. And it's absurd for you not to believe it, because if you don't believe it, all these things that you hold on to are not true. But we can hold on to forgiveness and not being in sins anymore and restoration and atonement. Why? Because Jesus Christ rose from the dead. But he's going to build on that. And in verses 20 to 28... He's going to lay out the timing of God's plan for resurrection. And he's going to do that within the whole story of the universe. And these verses are amazing. Within eight verses, Paul unpacks the story of the world. In a sense, this is like a tiny nutshell. It's a kernel in kernel form, the story of the whole Bible. And in these verses... He's going to string together a litany of Old Testament passages that demonstrate how Christ is fulfilling what God had wanted to happen and what God is doing in and through the person of Jesus. So there is a lot going on in verses 20 and 28. And as I said, we're just swimming. Okay, We're not, we're not going deep. We're just going to kind of swim through here together. And so the first thing we see, as we've already mentioned, is that God's plan for resurrection is going to occur in two stages. The first stage, Paul describes this, Jesus is the firstfruits. And then all of his people will act as the harvest. What God has done for Jesus, first, as the firstfruits, God is then going to do for all of those who are in Christ, the harvest, so there's an order to this. There's Everyone has a turn. Christ is the first. Then when he comes, all those who belong to him will experience resurrection. And yet Paul cannot stop there. For resurrection is just but one aspect of what the Messiah came to do. The reason that this is a guarantee is because of what Jesus accomplished in his resurrection. If you're in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, let's just read some of these verses together starting... In verse 23, but there is an order to this resurrection. Christ was raised as the first of the harvest. Then all who belong to Christ will be raised when we come back. After that, the end will come, when he will turn the kingdom of God over to the Father, having destroyed every rule and authority and power. For Christ must reign until he humbles all of his enemies beneath his feet. And the last enemy to be destroyed is death. For the scriptures say God has put all things under Jesus' authority. Of course, when it says all things are under his authority, that does not include God Himself, who gave Christ his authority. And so here's the order: is that Jesus, when he comes back, is not only going to give us these transformed bodies. But when he comes back, he's going to destroy all rule. He's going to destroy all the powers of this world. He's going to put to death all the powers that are behind all these nations. And he's going to cast Satan and all of his demons and his minions into the lake of fire. And he's going to judge all of those people who have rejected him. And he is going to bring order to God's new world. This is what Jesus is coming to do and what he does is he strings together a bunch of old testament passages and for like geeks like me i love seeing how these old testament passages influence the way paul thinks the way paul writes and so he in these verses highlights psalm 8 Psalm 8 is the psalm that begins with how majestic is our God, how majestic in all the earth He is. And it speaks a little bit later to how this psalm gives humanity vocation to rule over the earth under the authority of God. Psalm 110 is another messianic psalm about the Messiah, about Jesus. And this is the most quoted Old Testament passage in the New Testament regarding Jesus. And it speaks of Jesus conquering all of God's enemies and enthroned to God's right hands. And in Daniel chapter 2 and Daniel chapter 7, it speaks about God's coming kingdom in which the Son of Man will be given an everlasting kingdom that will be shared by all of God's people. And so you have all of these passages in Psalm 8, Psalm 110, Daniel 2, Daniel chapter 7, coming together in this rich, rich passage of Scripture that says in verse 25, Christ must reign until He humbles all of His enemies beneath His feet, Psalm 110. And the last enemy to be destroyed is death, Isaiah. And the Scriptures say God has put all things under His authority, Psalm 8. So the point is, is that... When Jesus walked out of the grave, he now has all authority Matthew 28 and he is reigning and he will reign until he comes back and puts to death all the rest of those powers and authorities and then he hands the kingdom back over to God in which then all of God's people get to share in God's new worlds. This is the hope of Christianity. That Jesus has come And in his resurrection, destroyed all the powers of hell, all the powers of Satan, has destroyed the powers of sin, has conquered death. And he right now is the true Lord of the worlds. And one day, when he comes back, he's going to, in a sense, bring that victory finally to pass. And he's going to hand the world back over to God the Father so that God might be all in all. Man, that is some hope. This is what Paul is saying about the timing of the resurrection. Only one person has experienced resurrection, and that's Jesus. And because He has experienced, we are guaranteed that one day in the future when He comes back to do all these things, we too will share in His resurrection life. Man, if that's not enough, Paul goes on, And if I was him, too, I want to take a little break, right? I mean, I need a little break after all of that deep, rich theology. In a sense, Paul does take a break. Uh, One commentator says this, these are his practical ramblings. And they're ramblings because they're short sentences. They talk about a lot of different topics. And he's actually quoting pagan poets. I know, isn't that weird? In your Bible, Paul quotes... Uh, Don't get mad at me, but he's basically quoting Post Malone, okay? a pagan poet who makes such statements. But the first thing Paul says in verse 29 is this, If the dead are not raised, what point is there being baptized for those who are dead? (laughs) Um, There's one commentator who I looked up. There are over 700 different interpretations of what baptism for the dead is and um i'm just going to leave that for you to figure out because i think it may be the most obscure difficult thing to figure out in all the bible because we got nothing else to go on there's no other passage in scripture even in a sense hints to what this is but the majority opinion if you're just wanting to know what most people most christians believe is that the people in corinth had relatives who had died, who had believed the gospel, but had died before they were able to be baptized. And so their relatives and friends would be baptized for them via proxy because what baptism is is a picture that you have died with Christ and you have been what? Experienced resurrection life. And so these people would go through baptism for the dead not in a sense to secure their eternal destiny, because that could never happen, but as an imagery that these people are going to experience resurrection that is pictured in baptism. So, that is one view of baptism for the dead, which there are 716 more out there if you want to find some. You're sure the Greek poets are better than Post Malone? Those are some fighting words right there, Luke. I'm just kidding. I'm sure they were way better than Post Malone. Far less uh, eye tattoos, too. Um, I'm also reading Garrett's question here, so give me one second here. For those of us raised on Believe So You Can Get to Heaven, do you think the hope of bodily resurrection on a renewed earth changes how we might live in this present life in 2020? I think it definitely changes, and um, I'm gonna. If I don't answer that by the end, Garrett, you're here with me. Just tell me to answer your question for you. But I think it changes tons of things, um, and I'll hint at a few of those. But here's one thing that it changes, and if you're still um, in your in your Bible there with me, and you're in verse 32 and 33 of First Corinthians. Um, I want to read a couple verses there in First Corinthians fifteen, verse thirty-two and thirty-three, because I think we find actually that's a good segue. Thank you, Garrett. Um, a segue into how it changes. Paul says this: "Let us eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die." And now here we get Paul quoting a uh, pagan poet, that says this, Bad company ruins good morals. If you're like me, you're just thinking Paul's quoting the book of Proverbs, right? (laughs) Uh, But he's actually quoting a uh, Greek pagan poet. And notice the connection here. You'd almost think that Paul is like just himself almost drunk, you know, doing like a crazy change. We were talking about resurrection, this glorious plan that God has for the world, and now we're talking about baptism for the dead, and now we're talking about bad company corrupts good morals? What is Paul doing? What is Paul thinking? Well, when Paul says, Let us eat, drink, and be merry for tomorrow we die, he's quoting Isaiah chapter 22. In Isaiah chapter 22, Israel had forgotten God. They would not listen to god's call to repent god was calling out to them to repent and turn from their sins and instead they didn't listen to god they continued to celebrate they continued to do their pagan festivals and basically they would eat and drink for tomorrow they're going to die they didn't trust in yahweh and paul states this in the context of the resurrection that if the resurrection is not true You're still dead in your sins, and you might as well eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow you will die. This is one implication. That the resurrection is real, then it gives us meaning to our life right now. That life isn't just about, let's eat, drink, have a great time, because life has no meaning, and tomorrow we're just going to die. In fact, life is filled with meaning right now in light of our future hope. But other pagans also agreed with this philosophy. One group of Greek, Luke may be able to help here a little bit, are the Epicureans. The Epicureans thought this way of eat, drinking, and be merry, and they also thought, people thought uh, in that day that living this way leads to bad ethics. So what Paul is basically doing is he's putting together these bunch of thoughts about eat, drink, be merry, tomorrow we die, and bad company corrupts good morals. And what he's basically doing is saying is this, is that if you're hanging around people who have no hope for the future, those people are actually going to corrupt your ethic, your morality, and your behavior. So that Christians who have a hope of resurrection actually have meaning to why they live their life today. So that in one sense the basis for our holiness, our ethic as Christians is rooted in the resurrection. Such that if there is no resurrection, do whatever you want because nothing matters. And when you hang around with people like that, just know that even Greek pagan people knew that people who had no hope for the future live a certain way and they corrupt people around them. So, those are Paul's ramblings about baptism for the dead and about who you hang out with and what you believe because of how it changes your holiness. And I lost my entire page that had all... There it goes, right there. So, making sure I'm not missing anything from any of you. So, we've talked about the timing of the resurrection. We've talked about some ramblings of the resurrection. And now in verses 35 through 49, Paul is going to deal with the type of resurrection. The question now becomes, what will our bodies be like? What type of body will we possess when they're actually transformed? And so Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and verse 35 says this, he asks the two questions. How are the dead raised? And with what kind of body do they come? Now, these two questions are dealing with two different aspects of the type of body that we'll have. The first question is a question of what we're going to call agency. It's a question of how this is going to happen. How will our dead bodies actually be given new life? How will that occur? The second question, with what kind of body will they come, this is a manner, a question of manner. What does our body look like? What is it composed of? So Paul wants to address the type of resurrection based on two different criteria. Number one, how, where does the power come from? And two, what will it actually look like? And so as he answers these two questions, he refers to an agricultural concept of sowing and reaping. When you plant... You don't put wheat in the grounds, but the seed. You don't put cauliflower in the ground, but cauliflower seed. You don't put tomatoes in the ground. You put tomato seeds in the ground. This is his point, is that the seed is what goes in the grounds. And Paul is saying our bodies will be planted in seed form in death. And just like the seed needs the Creator's power... And providence to cause life, so the same will be true for us as Christians. Our body are planted as seeds into the ground, and God the Creator begins to work in that and transform that seed into something that is holy and completely the same and yet different. The Creator's power gives life to the seed. In fact, the verse, or sorry, the verb in verse 36 where it says he will make the seed come to life is actually what we call a passive verb. So a passive verb is not the person doing the action, but the person is actually being acted upon by someone else. And so when we come to life, we are not doing it. It's actually some outside power, some outside person, which obviously we know right now to be God, who is going to give life to that seed and begin to transform that seed into the plants. We also miss something in our English translations. In verse 37, I'm reading right now out of the ESV. And it says, and what you sow is not the body that is to be, but a kernel, perhaps of wheat or some other grain. Now, in the Greek, it actually says this, the one who sows does not sow the body that will be, but a naked kernel. Paul actually uses the word naked to describe the seed. If we go all the way back to Genesis chapter 1, Adam and Eve were found to be naked. Now, we talked about this last week, but I think it bears repeating because it's so important for our theology. Is that when Adam and Eve were naked, we often think of that as like they were innocent and they were pure. And they didn't even know they were naked. They could walk around naked and not feel shame and not feel guilt. I mean, if any of us walked around naked today, we'd all like cover up. And if not, we'd have some sort of insanity problem, most likely. But I don't think being naked in Genesis 1 and 2 is just simply a state of innocence, per se. I think the idea of being naked in Genesis 1 points to the fact that one day we actually need to be clothed. That our body is naked in Genesis 1, but it's not going to always stay naked. In fact, it's going to be clothed one day. It needs more. It needs clothes on it. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, Paul says this, Meanwhile, we groan, longing to be clothed instead with our heavenly dwelling, because when we're clothed, we will not be found naked. What is Paul saying in 2 Corinthians chapter 5? That we want to be clothed. That there's coming resurrection one day. When resurrection occurs, we will actually be clothed. Now, will there actually be clothes in the resurrection? I kind of think so. But I think the imagery is more of like a metaphor, more of like a picture. That in Genesis 1 and 2, Adam's body was not everything it was supposed to be. And its body would not be everything it was supposed to be until resurrection occurred. And so Paul is making this contrast between a naked kernel and a plant that grows up that is actually clothed. Now. In these next couple passages, or next couple verses, Paul begins to make some contrasts. As we jump into First Corinthians chapter 14, if you want to start in verse 42, he says, So it is with the resurrection of the dead. What is sown is perishable, and what is raised is imperishable. It is sown in dishonor, it's raised in glory. It's sown in weakness, it's raised in power. So Paul is just making, if you look at those verses in 1 Corinthians 15, 42, these contrasts between the first body that we have now and the new body that's coming. One is perishable, it will die. The next one is imperishable. One is sown in dishonor, but it's raised in glory, it's given honor. One is weak, one will be powerful. But then this last contrast, I think those first three are self-explanatory. We don't need much help to process that. But this last contrast, I think, needs a little bit of work. It says in 1 Corinthians 15.44 that this body is sown a natural body and it will be raised a spiritual body. So... Because we live in the West, because of our dualistic life that we believe the distinction between heaven and hell are completely different, when we hear spiritual body, I don't know what comes into your mind, I wish I could just hear all of your uh, comments and what you actually think spiritual body means. But for most of us, when we hear the word spiritual body in 1 Corinthians 15, we probably think of not a body with flesh and blood. But probably like, uh, you know, a body that is like the angels. A body that is fit for us when we go up and to live in heaven. See, it is right there, Scott. We have spiritual bodies. and We're going to live forever in heaven with these spiritual bodies because our natural body, our physical body is in the ground and what we get raised to is a spiritual body. Is that what Paul is saying? I don't think that's what Paul has in mind, at all. In fact, all we have to do is read 1 Corinthians and we'll see Paul use these same two words between natural and spiritual and see how he uses them. So you might be familiar with these passages. In 1 Corinthians chapter 2, it says, The natural person, and this is the same one, the same body, this natural body, does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him. So what is Paul saying? Clearly in this context, to understand the difference. Who can understand the Spirit of God? People who are spiritual. Who are the people who can understand God? The people who are natural. And so the comparison being made in this context is between those who are guided and indwelt by the Spirit of God... And those who are not indwelt and guided by the Spirit of God—who are the people that don't think Christianity is foolishness—who are the people that think that resurrection is real—those are the people who have been indwelled by the spirits. So these adjectives of natural body and spiritual body in First Corinthians fifteen forty-four are not describing the composition of the bodies, like what they're actually made of. They're describing what gives life to the bodies. See, the natural body, in 1 Corinthians 15, and in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, what gives life to the body is just the natural life that all of us have and experience. The spiritual body is when the Spirit of God is going to come upon the people of God and breathe new life, new creation into them. See, this is what new creation is all about. New creation, or sorry, old creation, first creation... The breath of God came into people and gave them natural life. But there's coming a new creation where the Spirit of God is going to breathe into these people new life. So, what I want to do is come back to 1 Corinthians 15, and just make this comment. When it says it's sown a natural body and raised a spiritual body, what Paul is contrasting is that one day, this resurrection physical body that you and I actually have will be breathed into by the Spirit of God and transformed because Jesus is the life-giving Spirit. And we find that passage a little bit later in verse 46. But it is not the spiritual that is first, but the natural and then the spiritual. So here's the order, is that these bodies, the spiritual comes second. And the first man was from the earth, Adam, a man of dust. And the second man comes from heaven. As was the man of dust, so also are those who are of the dust. And as is the man of heaven, so also are those who are of the heaven. 1 Corinthians 15:48. So just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we also will bear the image of the man of heaven. Here's Paul's conclusion. It's just like Philippians chapter 3. Our lowly bodies will be transformed into the same glorious body of Jesus. We will bear the image of the man of heaven. But Paul begins to close this section in 1 Corinthians 15 verse 51. After telling us that here's the gospel, it's based on the resurrection. After telling us about the timing, it's going to come in this two-stage process. That Jesus is first and we will follow him. And then when he talks about the type of resurrection... It's going to be very similar to our bodies, but different. It's never This new body is never going to experience decay, never going to die, never experience disease. Now he begins to address the question, well, what about those people who are here when Jesus returns? Will they experience resurrection? Wouldn't it be great if Jesus came back today? It'd be great. Quarantine would be over. And we can walk wherever we want to walk and never be afraid of anything again. But what about those people who really are here when Jesus comes back? Paul says this, I tell you a mystery. And a mystery is not something that we have to dig into and find all the clues. It's something in the Old Testament that was hidden, but now when Jesus comes, there's a light bulb moment. And the light bulb moment is this is we're all going to be changed. Even those people who are here when Jesus comes, they will experience transformation. And it's going to happen instantly in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye. The trumpet will sound, the dead will be raised imperishable, and we will all be changed." So again, notice this. Paul very rarely is redundant. He rarely repeats things over and over again for the sake of effect, and here he does it. In one of the few times in all of Paul's writings, he repeats something in verses 53 and 54. It's this. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable, and the immortal body must put on immortality. When the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come the pass. the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? See, there's coming a day where Paul is taunting and is going to taunt death. You know, being someone who's very competitive, when you win you like to taunt people and make sure they know that you beat them. If they don't care that you beat them, it's no fun beating them, and you can't taunt them. But here Paul is taunting a real enemy. He's taunting death. He's actually singing a song against death. And this all comes in 1 Corinthians 15 verse 57, thanks be to God who gives us victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. So Paul closes this whole section with, Hey, church, you got hope. Just wait for Jesus to come back, and everything will be okay. Actually, Paul doesn't end that way. That's how I would, you know, if I was closing my sermon to you, I'd be like, and there's our hope. Let's wait for Jesus to come back. But Paul doesn't say that. Here's Paul's conclusion to this whole chapter Therefore, my beloved sisters, brothers and sisters, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. So, who is Paul talking to here? Sometimes I think this verse gets pushed on to pastors and ministers that their labor is not in vain. Well, Paul's talking to everyone. He's talking to the common people in the church, if you will. And he's making this conclusion, that because of the resurrection, everything you do in the name of Jesus has meaning and value. That is powerful. That is beyond powerful. That as a follower of Jesus, whether you're a pastor, a deacon, a member of the church, or you're just a brand new Christian who became a Christian today, here's the point, is that all of your work has meaning. What happens in this life in the name of Jesus will be carried on into the next life. What you do in the name of Jesus right now has reverberations through the dimension into that new world. So Paul says, be immovable, be steadfast, knowing that everything you do right now is in a sense impacting and affecting the world to come. And because the world to come is physical, because it's real, it's tangible, and the church is the sign of that new world in the present world. That means that the church should be about demonstrating what that new world will look like, knowing that resurrection is coming. And when resurrection happens and God and the person of Jesus puts all authority under his feet and establishes this new order in this new world, there will be no more sickness. People will not be hungry. People will not be without toilet paper, which if we need toilet paper, I hope not. But the point is, is that the church, because of the resurrection, Is called to meet the needs of people. It is called to tell them that a new king is in town. It is here to tell the world that Jesus is Lord. And church, we are citizens of heaven. We give first and ultimate priority to our citizenship, which is in heaven. I love being an American. I love the freedoms that we have. But our citizenship, first and foremost, is not to promote in this world the United States of America. Our citizenship is, first and foremost, to promote the things of heaven down here on Earth. In First Corinthians chapter, sorry, Philippians chapter three. Verse 21, Paul says, our citizenship is in heaven, which again, most of us think, well, that's where we're going to go. When we're all done with life, we're going to go up and be with God in heaven because that's where our citizenship is. Well, it's interesting, Paul is writing to a church in Philippi, and they were Roman citizens in Philippi. And what Roman citizens in Philippi were supposed to do is they were to take the Roman world, the Roman culture, the Roman customs, the Roman beliefs, and transport that into the city of Philippi. As citizens of heaven, the church is called to take the things that are above, the things that one day are going to come down here and fill this earth. We are called to do that ahead of time. We are citizens of heaven. We are bringing the values, the culture, the world, the belief systems of the heavens to this earth right now. Knowing, the very next verse, that when Jesus comes back, he will transform our lowly bodies. So what is, difference does it make? I think it makes all the difference in the world knowing that all of your labor counts it means something it'll be rewarded it'll reverberate into the next world it means that we are citizens of a new heaven a new world that we are called to establish here on this earth and it means that we have hope our hope is that we will be transformed into the very same image of god in the person of jesus Jesus, thank you that you will come back and put all things under your feet, and you will give us new resurrection bodies, and because that everything we do has meaning. So give us hope today. In Jesus' name, amen.
0: Thank you for listening to the Redemption Church Podcast. To learn more about our kingdom ministry located in Chesapeake, Virginia, visit weareredemption.org.